Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke 22, verses 14 through 23. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as, as, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed." And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Throughout our culture's history, milk has been considered a staple, a staple food, something that almost everyone drinks every day if they're able. As a result, until recently, there wasn't really any need for milk producers to advertise their product since everybody was using it practically. But then an interesting thing happened in the late 1900s. Um, from about 1980 to 1990, what the government realized is that people, for some reason, stopped drinking milk as much. Dr consumption dropped by about 20%. And so the government stepped in, hired an expensive ad agency, and asked them to come up with a marketing plan to convince people that drinking milk is cool again. And so. You probably, if you've been around that long, you remember the ad campaign because you could hardly open a magazine or watch a television show for very long before you would see an ad that featured celebrities like Michael Jordan or Jennifer Aniston or even The Simpsons with a milk mustache. And it always ended with a question, got milk? One of the most successful ad campaigns ever launched, and it went on for years. Well, a few years later, some Christian ministry decided to rip off that ad campaign, which we Christians are good at copying the culture, aren't we? And so they came out with a series of ads that always ended with a question, got Jesus? One of them had a, a man uh, bungee jumping off, a, off of a bridge, and halfway down, he realizes that his rope wasn't attached. And the commercial ends with the question, got Jesus? Well, Ligonier Magazine came out with an article not long after that ad campaign launched and said, okay, really, the most important question is, has Jesus got you? Has Jesus got you? 
As one of our favorite worship songs that we just sang a moment ago says, he will hold us fast if we belong to him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Think about that phrase for a moment. He is the one who creates faith and gives it to us as a gift. And he's the one who will complete faith in our lives. From beginning to end, it's the work of Jesus in your life for you to have faith. So the question I want us to consider this morning is, how does he sustain that faith in between? How does he sustain your faith between when he authors it and when he will one day in the future finish it? As he said to his disciples in John chapter 10 about his disciples, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That's his promise. How does he do that? How does he sustain faith? Well, the reformers said he does it by the means of grace. That's a phrase you'll see when the reformers talk about discipleship. That disciples of Jesus Christ rely upon the means of grace. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines the means of grace in this way. It says, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So the simple short answer is he sustains the faith of believers by the means of grace. And the means of grace listed there are the word of God, prayer, and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's how important they are to your faith. That's how important they are to your life. The strength of the early church was the means of grace. In Acts chapter 2, listen to this description of the, the early church at its very beginning. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, in other words, the word of God, as the apostles were given new revelation for the new covenant to add to the, old, the revelation of the old covenant in the Old Testament. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, which is a phrase in Acts, which refers to the taking of the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. Word, sacrament, prayer, means of grace, made the early church strong. The Lord's Supper, as Jesus administers it here in this passage, shows, it, shows why it is so essential to sustaining our faith. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he gives that rest through the means of grace, word, prayer, sacrament. We're here in Luke 22. Last week we saw the kind of the introduction to this passage where we, we see that it's the night before Jesus was tried and tortured and crucified. The chief priests and the scribes have gathered to come up with a plan to arrest Jesus outside of the public eye, away from the crowds. And we saw back in verse 3 that Satan entered into Judas to lead him, according to his own sinful desires, to betray Jesus. And so he conspires with the enemies of Jesus, the Jewish leadership, to come up with a way to arrest Jesus outside of the public eye. 
That's why, as we saw last week, that Jesus gives Peter and John these cryptic instructions to find a place for them to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, just Jesus and his 12 disciples, so that it would be a location that Judas couldn't know because he didn't understand, he couldn't have known what the instructions meant. So we come here in verse 15 then, where Jesus, they've come to the, the upper room, the room has been furnished and prepared, the meal has been prepared, and Jesus and his disciples recline at the table. And he introduces the meal in this way. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's even more vivid in the original language. In the Greek, it says, with desire, I have desired to eat this meal with you. That's a Jewish way. You know, Jewish people, that's how they emphasize something. We put it in bold or underline it or shout it or whatever. But for them, they, they repeat it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. With great desire, I have desired to share, to, to share this meal with you. He deeply longed to be with them at this supper. That's how important it was to him and how important it was going to become to them. Why was it so important? Well, just as a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, so what Jesus does here with the old covenant meal of Passover is he transforms it into the new covenant meal of the Lord's Supper. Right before the apostles' eyes, they're going to see this meal go from old covenant shadows to new covenant fulfillment as Jesus establishes a new supper, but just like everything else from the Old Testament, it's a continuation of the grace of the Old Testament, but now in the fullness and light of the new covenant. The last supper that Jesus eats with his disciples actually becomes the first Lord's Supper of a new era for God's people. The Old Covenant Passover meal celebrated deliverance. It was a physical deliverance, a deliverance from bondage and slavery and suffering in Egypt, a deliverance to freedom, freedom to worship God, freedom to live in the blessings of the promised land. But the Lord's Supper would be another greater celebration of deliverance, not deliverance from physical bondage, but spiritual bondage to sin and death. And just as the blood of the Passover lamb caused the angel of death to pass over the faithful Jewish households in the original Exodus, now what this Lord's Supper represented was how the blood of Christ would cause the judgment of God and death to pass over those who belong to Christ. So the way Jesus institutes the supper here, we learn some things about its purpose. It shows us how Jesus sustains our faith through this meal. The first gift that comes to us through the Lord's Supper is that the supper deepens our unity as the body of Christ. The supper deepens our unity as the body of Christ. And we do not take the unity of the body of Christ nearly strongly enough. We do not see it as important as the scriptures see it. But Jesus understood that unity in his body was so important. So in verse 17, it says, Jesus took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Now, this is not the cup that would be transformed into the cup we use in the Lord's Supper. This is actually the first cup of the Passover meal. The Passover meal featured four cups of wine, 
it was a diluted wine, so that, you don't have to worry about getting drunk, but it was, it was a diluted wine that they drank during the Lord's Supper. So they, they, this is the first cup, the cup at the beginning of the meal. And he says, you are to take this cup and you're to divide it among yourselves. One cup divided among all the disciples. Jesus shared in this one cup with his disciples. Yes, it was a common cup. They all drank from the same cup. Well, we, when we think about the later cup that represents the Lord's Supper, we don't do that. Uh, it's kind of hard to imagine doing that in a post-COVID world. But the imagery here that Jesus sets for the meal is important because that's the tone of the whole meal, is that we are sharing together in this means of grace. Communion, the word that we use to describe the Lord's Supper, we call it communion. It's one of the terms we have for it. The word in Latin itself means to participate together, a mutual participation, a sharing. It's what Paul was referring to when he compares the Old Testament Passover meal to the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. This supper is a visible illustration of our oneness in Christ. But more than that, as we partake of it, we are actually participating in our unity in Christ. Sharing a meal, even to this day, even in our individualistic culture, sharing a meal together is a sign of fellowship a sign of, of intimate relationship to one degree or another. But we actually value the shared meal far less than most cultures in the world. And certainly, when you think of first century Jewish culture, to share a meal together was to express an, a, a close, intimate relationship with those that you shared your meal with. It makes what Judas did all the more heinous, doesn't it? Matter of fact, the passage here points out that Judas, for Judas to leave to betray Jesus during this meal shows how heinous his sin was. In verse 21, it quotes Jesus saying, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. It's in this shared meal. Mark's account says that Jesus said that the one who is dipping his bread in the dish with me is the one who would betray him. Communion is inherently a corporate activity. In these days of individualism in the church, I want to underline that, that this means of grace as the Lord's Supper is a corporate activity. We do it together as a body. Matter of fact, we as a church will not serve communion one-on-one. -on -one. If somebody's in the hospital or if they're a shut-in and they need to receive the communion, I won't go to them and one-on-one -on -one serve communion to them because it is inherently a corporate activity. So when we take communion to somebody in another location, we take the church with us. Not all of you. <laughs> that would be really difficult. But we do take at least the leaders and their wives or some representative group of the body of believers, and we go and have a worship service. And in the context of that worship service, we serve the Lord's Supper because that is how it's to be observed. It's an act of worship as a part of the body of believers. Some small churches, my first church that I pastored in western Pennsylvania, 
uh, served table communion, where actually people would come and gather around a real table and pass the bread and the cup and share it like a meal. And I always thought that that's the best way, I think, to represent our unity. Not really practical, maybe this morning, but um, we actually were talking about having a Monday, Thursday service this year during the Easter season and maybe doing table communion. And so we're trying to figure out some way to do that logistically. But it's, it really communicates the idea that this is a family meal. And it is something that's meant as we partake together to deepen our unity in Christ. Notice that when Jesus instructs his disciples to come to worship, remember what he said. If you're coming to worship and if you're coming to the Lord's table, he says, if you remember that, you have, that someone has something against you, that you have a broken relationship in your life, go and be reconciled. Leave your gift, go and be reconciled, and then come to worship. And that's a good reminder to us. That's why you'll hear that often when we give warnings about coming to the Lord's table, is that this is a place to celebrate God's grace and forgiveness. But if you're not willing to forgive somebody else, if you've not done all you can do to be reconciled with a brother or sister, go and be reconciled so that you can come and celebrate grace and forgiveness. Now, I always qualify that by saying it takes two people to reconcile. The other person has to be willing to either offer forgiveness or to, uh, to ask for forgiveness, and you can't make that happen. But the question is, have you done all that you can do to be reconciled to someone with whom you are a broken relationship? That's just a checkpoint. And just notice how even preparing to come to the Lord's table requires you to celebrate the unity of the body and to work for the unity of the body so that you can come and celebrate and, and, and experience a, a deeper experience of being one in Christ. So that's the first one. It deepens our unity as the body of Christ. The second benefit of the Lord's Supper to his, his people is that it sharpens our focus on the gospel. The Lord's Supper is all about the gospel. In verse 19, it says, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 20 says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, like I said, this wasn't the first cup that they shared in together at the beginning. This is a cup later in the meal, probably the third of the fourth cups, four cups. But Jesus says, this cup that I give you, and this is, this is the cup that we share in when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This, he says, this cup is for you. It's for you. It's given for you. The bread that he breaks and distributes, it's given for you. It's the gospel visualized, isn't it? It's what J.C. Ryle called a visual, a visible sermon a visible sermon of the gospel. For you, that's a key phrase. If you've ever really studied New Testament theology, that little tiny phrase, for you, is crucial to the gospel. You can translate it in the original language. You can translate it for your benefit. This is my body given for your benefit. This is my blood poured out for your benefit. But that's not actually what it means in the context of the New Testament almost every time. It's sacrificial language. Literally, you translate it, in your place. This is my body given in your place. This is my blood poured out in your place. That's what Jesus means. He's using the language of the Old Testament sacrifice, but he's pointing to his own sacrifice. A faithful disciple may have been reminded as he heard that sacrificial language of the 
prophecy given about the Messiah and the Messiah's death in Isaiah 53, where it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. His body was given for you. His blood was poured out for you in your place. Hebrews 9, it says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's why every time that God makes a covenant, matter of fact, in Jeremiah 31, it talks about this new covenant. When Jesus says, it's the new covenant in my blood, again, a faithful Jew who knew the Old Testament would immediately think, of the one key place in the Old Testament where it talks about a new covenant being established, and that's Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He goes on in verse 33 to say, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now those things, forgiveness and the teaching of the Holy Spirit, all those things were promised and given to Old Testament believers, but what that Jeremiah is saying, that in the new covenant, it'll be brought to its fullness. There will be a final sacrifice for sin. Once for all, a sacrifice will be given that will provide forgiveness of sin for God's people. And the indwelling of the Spirit will be taken to a much greater level as the Spirit indwells the new covenant church. That was the promise. But in that the language in the original Hebrew is, it says, I will cut a new covenant. And that word cut is always used when it talks about God making a covenant with his people. Because every covenant that God made with his people was accompanied by the shedding of blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Every covenant looked forward to this new covenant that Jesus would establish in his own blood. The new covenant would bring full forgiveness once for all and would ensure the complete sanctification and glorification of the people of God. Did you notice, and maybe you've noticed before, that even though the eating of the Passover lamb in the Old Covenant was the key to the Passover meal, that in all four Gospels, or actually three of the Gospels give the details of the Lord's Supper, in those accounts of the Lord's Supper, the eating of the Passover lamb is not mentioned once. It's assumed, we assume they ate the Passover lamb, according to Old Testament instructions, but it's not mentioned in Jesus giving the account because the new covenant meal for the church would be bloodless. No need for blood to be shed in the new covenant meal because the blood of Christ was shed once for all. And so Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Look back, remember the basis of your salvation. The body given for you, the blood poured out for you in your place. But it isn't just a mental activity. Some churches present it that way, but it's not just a mental activity. Something spiritual happens when you receive this meal in faith. 
When you understand what the bread and the cup represent, and you receive it by faith, it's not just a mental activity of remembering what Christ did. It's not just like an anniversary meal of the crucifixion. It is a means of grace. Something spiritual happens. Something supernatural happens. You actually feed upon the benefits of Christ's redeeming work. And so that brings us to the third thing that the Lord's Supper does for you as a believer, is it strengthens you spiritually. In Matthew's account, where it gives a little more detail, Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body. And he says, drink of it, it is, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. We eat and drink to represent spiritually nourishing ourselves in Christ when we gather at his table. Now, the disciples at that table, in the very first Lord's Supper, did not eat the literal flesh and the literal, drink the literal blood of Christ, neither do we. But Jesus is using the bread and the cup as a metaphor for actually genuinely feeding upon him and his benefits to you, his redeeming work for you. It's a metaphor for receiving life. It's a metaphor for receiving grace and strength. It's the same thing Jesus meant when he, in John 6 when he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Just as we eat physically to maintain physical strength, we eat the Lord's Supper and receive the word of God, and we pray in order to receive spiritual strength. Have you been hearing yourself say to other people lately, I'm just tired all the time. I'm so tired. And we blame it on a lack of sleep, or we blame it on stress at work or in the classroom, or we staying up too late. But maybe there's some other deeper component to your tiredness. Tiredness has three components to it. Physical tiredness, emotional tiredness, or psychological tiredness, and then spiritual tiredness. And if you're tired in one of those areas of your life, you're going to be tired overall. Especially if you're tired spiritually. Do you remember what Jesus said to Satan when Satan tempted him? He said, man does not live by bread alone. We have food, we have exercise, we have medicine in order to keep ourselves physically healthy and strong. But it is the gospel and the means of grace that Christ has given to the church that keeps us spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically strong. We need daily the means of grace. We need the word of God and prayer every day. We need the sacrament every time it's offered in order to keep ourselves emotionally, psychologically, spiritually strong. And here's the promise from Isaiah 40. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. He mentions hope there, and that's the last benefit of the Lord's Supper, is its future emphasis. Partaking of the Lord's Supper in faith will strengthen your hope and renew your hope in Christ. Jesus refers to that in verse 16. He says, I tell you, I will not eat of it, the Lord's Supper, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There's that future emphasis. In verse 18, he says, I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this meal looks back to the, to the cause of our salvation at the cross, but it also looks forward 
to when our salvation is complete and perfected when Christ comes again. We need hope to live. Human beings made in the image of God need hope. When you wake up in the morning, you have to look forward to something or else you live in despair. And what the Lord's Supper does is it fixes our hope, not on anything in this life or in this world that can be quickly taken away from us, but it fixes our hope on that day when Christ is coming back to bring our salvation to its full and final state. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every meal is anticipatory of his second coming. It fixes our hope again where it needs to be to get you out of bed every morning, to serve Christ, to struggle against sin, to struggle against sinners, to struggle against persecution, to live through trials and tribulations, to renew your hope. We look forward to that meal that's described in Revelation 19 in glorious terms. It talks about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then once he has established, he's burned away, purged away by fire, all that is sinful, all that is wrong, all that is corrupted. And he establishes a new heaven and new earth. He does it the very next event. It's the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he says, he had, back in Luke 13, verse 29, Jesus said, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, you probably have noticed that the meal that we serve you here is not going to satisfy your physical need. It's just a tiny little piece of bread. It's a tiny cup. It's not going to satisfy you completely in your physical need. But what it does is it reminds us that the fullness of the meal is still to come. This is a foreshadowing. This is a taste. And it's to strengthen us so that we will last until that day when we will all gather around the Lord's table once and for all and we will feast with him for all eternity. That is our ultimate hope, our deepest desire. So let me ask again, has Jesus got you? Has Jesus got you? After they celebrated the Lord's Supper the first time in that upper room, Jesus prayed for the church. And here's how he prayed. He said, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Yes, Judas looked like he was among the 12, but actually he wasn't. He never actually believed. And yes, he was lost from an earthly perspective, but he, as Jesus said, that he might be the son of destruction that was promised, prophesied by the scriptures. He has not lost any of his truly elect people, and he never will. If Jesus has got you, he will keep you. And this meal is the means, one of the means by which he keeps you. It deepens our unity as a body of believers. It sharpens our focus upon the gospel. It strengthens us spiritually, and it renews our hope. And so I'll close with the statement that Jesus began the Last Supper with. I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. He says the same thing this morning. He is here by his Holy, by his Holy Spirit, he is present in our midst. 
and he has deeply desired to eat this meal with you. Come to the table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the means by which you have given us to not only sustain faith in you, but to grow in that faith, to become more like Jesus. Lord, may we be faithful in making use of the means you have provided. Lord, there are so many promises out there to make us better people, to make us even better Christians. So many programs, so many activities, so many things that we are to do. But Lord, you have given us what we need, the word of God, prayer, and this meal that we might draw near to you. Help us to focus our efforts there that we might grow and serve you better, more faithfully, until the day that we die or the Lord returns. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.